This Women's Agenda podcast series, The Leadership Lessons, is supported by Salesforce. Shelley Cable was just 24 years old when she became a Chief Executive Officer. For most people, reaching a career goal like that at such a young age may seem out of reach. But Shelley has taken it in her stride, taking strength from an inner confidence she says comes from her family. I'm Shelley Chowdhury, the host of Women's Agenda podcast, The Leadership Lessons, which is made possible thanks to the generous support of Salesforce. Today, I'm joined by Shelley, a proud Noongar woman who is the CEO of Generation One at the Mindaroo Foundation, an organization working towards creating employment parity for Indigenous people within one generation. Shelley is well-placed to lead this vital piece of work. In today's conversation, she shares with us how she got to where she is today, more about her work at Generation One and why she never felt like she had to follow the status quo. Shelley Cable, welcome to the Leadership Lessons by Women's Agenda. It is such a pleasure to have you here today. Thank you, Shelley, for having me. Oh, it's so nice. I'd like to start by acknowledging that I am on Camaragal land and I pay my deep respects to Elders past, present and emerging for their ongoing custodianship of this beautiful place that I have the privilege of living on. And I acknowledge that it is land that always was and always will be. Aboriginal land. Where are you dialing in from today? Uh, thanks, Shelley. Uh, so I'm dialing in from Bulu, which is Perth. So we're on Wajak Noongar Buja and always was, always will be Noongar Buja here where I'm dialing in from. Thank you. Um, it's nice to have somebody from Western Australia. All our guests have been from the East Coast so far, so you're the first. Very exciting. It feels like a different country, I have to say, at at this point in time. You haven't been in lockdown, have you? So that's a real privilege. Very much. Shelley, there's so much I want to talk to you about today, but why don't we start with Shelley Cable, the incredible young woman. You're 26. You're the CEO of the Generation One Initiative at the Mindaroo Foundation. That in itself is quite incredible. Can you give the listeners a little bit about your background and what brought you to the Mindaroo Foundation. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm a very proud Noongar woman who's been raised by amazing parents who have always had quite an entrepreneurial streak about them. They actually both met in a bank, which is uh, where their love blossomed. So I feel like I have always been destined to be in the accounting and finance world. So I did become a qualified accountant around a year ago now, making me one of less than 100 Indigenous qualified accountants in the entire country. Um, So I feel like I didn't have much of a say in that situation just based on where my parents met and what their histories and careers were. But I've always been very inspired by the power of business and the power of economic independence as a way forward for communities, for families and and especially for my mob. So it's been an absolute honour to be able to work at Mindaroo now for the past two years. And my, my metrics and my KPIs here in this job are to help close the employment gap between Indigenous and non Indigenous Australians in one generation. Yeah, great. And we'll talk more about what that means and uh, the relevance for people listening and how they can internalise some of that work that you're doing in their organisations. You talked about your parents as being quite empowering and they obviously understood the benefit of education. You also grew up with quite a famous granddad. Oh, he'd like to think so, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Tell us about that. I'm sure we have a lot of AFL fans listening who would love to hear that story. 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, uh, so my grandfather is Barry Cable, and I am a very a very proud granddaughter of his. In fact, his only granddaughter, alongside four grandsons. And so, my grandfather came from a very small country town called Narragin, and I am constantly inspired by his rise to AFL and the fact that, especially him being as short, like physically short as he is, could actually be a Noongar boy from a country town who's exceptionally short. <laughs> He's shorter than me, and to actually be able to move to Perth to follow his footy dream and then be drafted to North Melbourne, where not only did he play and play well, but in fact, he actually became you know a two-time premiership winner. He became coach of North Melbourne. He's in the AFL Hall of Fame. So, you know, to have that strong presence in our family is just such an honour. And, you know, it's really no surprise why his grandchildren have turned out the way we have. So are you West Coast Eagle fans or North Melbourne fans? Oh, that's too tricky. To, I can't answer that question. <laughs> I'd love to see the Dockers come home with the Premiership at least once in my life. Um, but, you know, having such an extended footy family, it's you know, all we say in the Cable family is we love a good game. Yeah, <laughs> we, nice. we won't take sides. Nice. So the work you're trying to do at the Mindaroo Foundation in Generation One, talk to us a little bit about that because that is... That is honestly why you're why you're here. You're a remarkable young woman, but the work you're doing is so so important to our future. Absolutely. So, so my job at Mindaroo is to help close the employment gap and create employment parity between Indigenous and non-Indigenous Australians, and we're trying to do that in one generation. Uh, what that looks like in actual numbers is we need another three hundred thousand Indigenous Australians in work by twenty forty. And that's a pretty big number regardless, but especially so when you consider that only around 200,000 Indigenous Australians are in work today. So over the next 19 years, we're looking to 1.5 times the size of our current workforce, which is, I would say, absolutely not on track at this point in time. The, the figures that we have indicate that employment parity is actually 200 years away, not 20 years. That's just a mind-blowing statistic. So for the people who are listening who don't know what employment parity means, talk us through that in terms of the population and and what it means in terms of the workforce in percentages. Yeah, yeah, good question. So in its very simplistic terms, employment parity would mean that Indigenous Australians are fairly represented as a percentage of their population in every workforce around Australia. So we we think that Indigenous Australians are roughly 3.3% of the Australian population. So what we'd like to see is Indigenous Australians representing 3.3% of the workforces around Australia. And another way to measure that is that what we want is 75% of working age Indigenous Indigenous Australians in work, which is on par with the rest of the country and the working age population of Australia. But the latest statistics that we have, which again are an estimate, is that actually less than half of working age Indigenous Australians are in work. So at the very base level, we're looking at numbers and actual physical representation in a range of workforces. But in time, as we begin to increase the representation, we'll start to look at quality measures as well. So if we have 3.3% of a given workforce, but all of our mob are in entry-level roles, that's not really a definition of success either. So we're, we're a little bit away from that to be able to be thinking about quality measures and, and senior leadership, but it is absolutely part of the journey that we need to go on. Yeah, absolutely. And so to put that into terms that everybody listening can identify with, is it fair to say that if you are in a company 
and you are not employing at least 3.3%, if at least 3.3% of your workforce in your company are not Indigenous or First Nations people, then you haven't hit employment parity. Absolutely. It means that Indigenous Australians find it harder to get a job at your workplace than other Australians. And let's talk about the barriers to entry for First Nations people. In some of the research that I've done in the past, we looked at the correlation between further education and better life outcomes for First Nations people. And what we found was that if, as a First Nations individual or young person, you go to uni or you complete a period of further education, it didn't matter what it was. It could be TAFE, it could be a job-ready program, it could be an apprenticeship or an internship. The beauty was that it didn't matter. It just had to be a period of structured learning. Then all this great stuff happened. Your employment prospects increased, your earnings potential increased, your opportunity to buy a home increased, your health improved, your life expectancy improved. Like every single life indicator went through the roof. Taking into account that kind of research, Shelley, what do you believe are the barriers to entry for First Nations people into the workforce? Yeah, just before I do, I think that's a really beautiful way to put it is that, you know, having a job or having education is not the goal in itself. It's the impacts that it has on an individual and their families and their communities that that's the reason why we do this. So um, there are, as you would know, a range of reasons as to why we're in the position we're in right now with Indigenous employment disparity. But one of the things we're looking at at Generation One, we're looking at the role of industry in actually overcoming those barriers. So often when people look at the gaps, we often think about what is it that Indigenous people need to change in order to close the gap. And so what we're trying to do is, you know, while there is an element of also taking personal responsibility, uh, it's not a one-way street. And we really want to know how employers and how industry are making their workplaces inclusive of First Australians as well. So it's not responsibility on, on one party at the expense of the other. What we're working on right now is how to encourage employers to have culturally safe workplaces, how to review their policies and practices to make sure they're not uh, unconsciously excluding First Nations people from joining their workplaces. So I think there's an element of taking responsibility by industry. And the second barrier that, that we're working on quite hard at the moment is the lack of data and the to be honest, complete invisibility of Indigenous people in our workforces today. Because we don't have to report on it, do we? There's no requirement to report to the government or anybody else on how many Indigenous employees we have. Oh, absolutely not. We would love to change that and and we think the trend is heading in that direction. But to be honest, Indigenous Australians are invisible in workforces across Australia. Uh, and, And to give you an indication of just how dire that situation is, is when we headed into the first outbreak of the COVID pandemic last year, uh, we commissioned a report to try and understand what the impact of that pandemic was having on Indigenous workers across the country. And we we thought the answers would be bad. Like we, we thought and we had a gut feel as to what we would expect through that report. And actually what came back just... It surprised all of us, including many of us who have been in this space for a long time. And that was the fact that no one could tell what was happening to Indigenous people across this country because there was no data to go on. And that's scary because we could have seen the biggest hit to Indigenous employment in Australia's history and nobody would know. So while we were tracking the impact of, you know, entry-level workers and a whole range of different industries, Indigenous people were invisible in all of that. And that's what really shocked us. So uh, as a result, we're now doing quite some work to try and close the data gap. 
as a means to close the employment gap because we know that this is a challenging and a complex situation that we're grappling with and to try and do it blindly without data is just making a difficult job harder. Yeah, absolutely. And we had um, Lisa Jackson-Pulver on a few weeks ago and she was she's doing a lot of work with vaccinations and community. So the work that they're doing is built around this concept of leave no one behind. And she was saying that actually Indigenous people in this country are getting vaccinated at lower rates, they're getting access at lower rates, and, again, there's very little data to support what's happening. I want to go back to your first point, Shelley, about creating workplaces that are inclusive and allow essentially people, every, everybody, to bring their authentic selves to work every day because that's what we all want. We want to be the same person at work that we are at home and to be able to show, show ourselves truly and who we are. There are companies out there that have reconciliation action plans and many of them believe that because they've got wraps in place that they've done what they need to to create inclusive workplaces. But you and I are both aware of companies where they produce a wrap. It sits in the bottom drawer for 50 weeks of the year and it comes out during NADOC week and Reconciliation Week. What do you think is necessary for companies to create truly inclusive workplaces, to, to create places where our First Nations people can actually self-identify as First Nations and not hide it and not feel like they're working in a place that doesn't welcome them. Yeah, so my first point in in response to RAPS is they have done so much good for this country and they've really helped employers along their cultural competence journey. Um, But if you're an employer who celebrates launching a RAP as opposed to actually completing and delivering on it, um, I think that probably points to, to what you're getting at there, Shirley. What employers can do like they need to understand the lived experience of Indigenous Australians in workplaces so there's you know I can speak to my own personal experience of being the only Indigenous staff member in a a huge workforce and just how lonely that can feel Um, there's a term now called cultural load which came out as a result from the Gary Yeller uh, research I think earlier this year which spoke to the fact that when Indigenous Australians identify in a workplace there is a ton of extra work which we call cultural load that is placed on their shoulders often uh, without their consent or without actually understanding what the impact of that is and I can speak from my own experience you know being uh, until this role being largely an accountant and a financial analyst you know my my job every day was to go into work and do spreadsheets and reconciliations and financial reporting but I also had to organize NAIDOC week and I had to organize welcomes to country and I had to call on my family to come in and give those welcomes to country and there none of that was in my job description and so as a result you realize that you're the only person in a workplace that can actually deliver on those things you become the chair of the RAP working group at your organisation. And there's a lot of work that goes into that. A RAP is not, uh, you know, surface level actions. Like it's a lot of work and planning involved in delivering on those. And so often I would find myself being dragged away from my core job that I was being paid to do and measured against exactly right to help the organisation deliver on its RAP. And I think as soon as you hit that point, you realise that should be someone's job. Like if, if you're actually asking your staff to deliver on this uh, and it's it's taking them away from their work. That is a job in itself. And then, of course, as you've, as you've pointed out, you do get measured against what you're doing in the financial space because that's what you're there to do. So you have this constant tension between what you, what you are there to do uh, as opposed to the work that only you can do in that workplace, and that's what we call cultural load. 
And there are companies out there who, and they wouldn't want their name released because they're doing it quietly, who recognise the cultural load they put on First Nations employees and they've recognised it structurally. And I think that's really, really important because it's one of those things that goes unnoticed in many companies. It's just expected that if you're a First Nations employee, that that's what you'll do and all the cultural questions will come to you too. Absolutely. And I'm so glad that it's been given a name now that we can actually call it out for what it is. Uh, and, you know, I'm seeing a lot more workplaces recognise now that that is, that is work, that is real work, and people deserve to be paid for the knowledge and the networks they bring in to their workplace. So uh, I think we're seeing a positive trend and I think giving this a name has been really, really helpful. Yeah, absolutely. And I want to talk a little bit about why it's so important. So people accept at one level that we have to have diversity and inclusion in our workplaces, and that means a diversity of views and people and experience and thinking, and that includes First Nations people. But can you talk to us a little bit about the rich value we get when we bring First Nations people into our organisations? We have this shared history and heritage in this country that is 60, 000, over 60,000 years old, we have the privilege of living in a country where First Nations people have given us this gift of sharing it with us, with non-Indigenous Australians. Talk to us a little bit about how companies can internalise that and create real value from creating a more diverse workforce and putting structure in around the First Nations procurement and hiring and doing exactly what you're suggesting that they do. Yeah, I don't think employers know yet the value that they're missing out on. I think often the conversation centres around the fact that we want Indigenous people in our workplaces just to do the jobs that already exist in in the ways that we think they should be done. So having Indigenous accountants, for example, to be following all the same rules as you would expect any other accountant to do. Um, And that's there's an element of like we need that as well, but I think there's something missing if that's all that we get to. If employers can't understand the unique perspectives that Indigenous Australians bring to a workplace, uh, particularly to leadership teams and to boards, how we spot risks, that others perhaps don't, the fact that we can understand inclusion because we've understood exclusion in our lives. Uh, There are so many different things that we can bring and and not to generalise Indigenous people like like this, um, but there is just so much additional value that we can bring if we're given the freedom to, to bring our whole selves to work. There are things that we can see that others simply can't and it's, it's often hard to articulate because you just see it. like there is no comparison for me in terms of what I can see as opposed to what other people can see. Um, but I do, I have noticed, especially in, in this role at, at Mindaroo, being on a leadership team, that I do see things differently from my colleagues. One of the things that we've talked about on this podcast in the last few episodes, we had Maddie De Rosario on, we've had Lisa Jackson-Pulver on, we've had a variety of different voices. And one of the things that has come up again and again, whether it's with disability, whether it's with First Nations perspective, whether it's with a multicultural perspective, is if you don't have that voice at the table, it often gets missed. It often gets lost. So I think Maddie said in her podcast, she said, if you are trying to sell a product or make a widget or whatever it is, if you're trying to target the Australian population and you're not, you don't have an Indigenous voice or a a voice of disability on the table, you are missing that entire cohort. Nobody else is going to see that perspective like a First Nations person would on your board or in your leadership team. And that's what you're saying, isn't it? 
Oh, a hundred percent. I mean, I've even just noticed that by sitting at a table, like by actually taking a seat at the table, I sometimes don't have to say anything. Uh, and the people around me, by virtue of me being visible in that room and taking up a seat around that board table, uh, people all of a sudden consider the Indigenous perspective and they wonder what I'm thinking just by virtue of me being there. So I don't think we can underestimate the power of, of having visibility um, of Indigenous Australians and especially at, you know, the the, the high level and the decision-making levels. Yeah, absolutely. Let's talk about you a little bit, Shelley, and we'll come back to the employment parity and the work you're doing in a minute. Quite remarkable to be CEO at 24. Was that planned? Was it serendipitous? Tell us about that because I think, you know, there's a lot of lessons out there for other young women looking at your journey and thinking, wow, that's something that I would love to aspire to. What's your advice for them? Yeah, uh, it's a bit nuts. It, it really is. Like, I never thought that I would be, I'd always hoped, but I never thought that I would be a CEO at 24. I always knew I wanted to be a, a corporate boss lady of some kind. I didn't quite think it would happen this quickly. Um, and, and also, but when I when I think about my family and the, the grandchildren and the, and the children that they've raised, it's kind of who am I not to be? Who am I not to be this person at this age? Um, there's, there's so much that my family has proven to me that we don't have to follow the status quo. We don't have to accept it. You know, we don't often take ordinary lives. Like for my grandfather to have come from a small country town, being a short football player and making it to the AFL Hall of Fame. Um, you know, he he didn't follow the path that other people would have expected or set. And so when you grow up in an environment like that, it's kind of you don't get intimidated by challenges that come your way. You don't get you have this inner confidence that actually maybe you were meant for this. And that's a really, really powerful thing that, that I'm just so grateful that my family has instilled in me. Um, and so, you know, I, I didn't think that I would be here at the, certainly not at this stage in my career. And I hadn't planned to be here at all. So when you ask about was it serendipitous, um, to be honest with you, I didn't know that philanthropy wasn't was a sector until I took a job in it you know I'd always thought I'd be working for corporate Australia probably in their finance department somewhere uh, hopefully with an element of corporate social responsibility uh, and yet this opportunity I didn't even know it was going so for me to then end up here and, and now be here two years later I can't say that that was planned. Oh, it's quite extraordinary and Shelley you talked before about from the position of a First Nations person when you know exclusion you know what it means to be included all of us across the board everyone who's listening we all face times when things aren't so great and we have the voice in our head telling us we can't do it you know you're being excluded from something things aren't going well how do you cope with that your family's obviously given you a deep sense of resilience what are your mechanisms to cope with those downturns and those moments when things aren't going so well? Yeah, I think it's important to acknowledge that we all have those moments when we're like, I, I don't know how I'm going to do this or I don't know if I can. And and especially when you work in this space, I think Mindy is really great at this. We have a value here called stretch targets. And the point of stretch targets is to make sure that uh, we're always uncomfortable with our level of challenge. So we are deliberately putting ourselves in those situations. And so a, a natural result of that is, is sometimes you get overwhelmed and you think, how the hell am I going to close the employment gap with 19 years left? You know, if, if there was a simple answer, it would have been done already. So we're constantly dealing with challenges that we don't actually know how to solve. Um, so I think that's been really great to build my resilience, knowing that there's a whole foundation here that feels the same way, but 
the important thing is that we don't let it overwhelm us. We we stay, we need to find hope because if we don't, then we're giving up. And so that's been a really uh, valuable experience for me. But again, I just, I feel so privileged to have had my family instill such confidence in me that if someone stands in my way or says, no, I don't think you're ready to, to be a manager or I don't think you're ready to do the company director's course, I always just think, oh, I'll show you, like, who are you to get in my way? You know, my family has taught me that I can do anything and I truly believe that. And so when I notice people who just get in the way, sometimes there is that inner confidence to say, just just give me, a, you know, let me become, if I can't become a manager, I'll become a CEO instead. <laughs> or, you know, if I'm not ready to do the company director's course, let me, let me do it, let me win a scholarship to do it, and then let me take a double page spread as a feature in the company director's magazine. Which is a great article, <laughs> which is a great article and how we met. I think it's so important. One of the things we've talked about on this podcast now for this is the second season that I've done it is trying to normalise those voices in our head because we all get them. We all face self-doubt where that voice is sitting on our shoulder saying you can't do it or other people are are telling us we can't do it. And I love the self-confidence that you approach that with because we've all got that. We just don't always listen to it. Mm. Absolutely. And it takes practice. And the good thing to know is that men get it too. Like it's not a female thing to, to, to have doubts about yourself. And, you know, you, I think we as, as women, we are strong. Like we can overcome all of those things. And who are we not to overcome those things when you think about the giants on whose shoulders we stand and the ancestors that we have and how our family raised us? Like how dare we, you know, let barriers consume us and doubts consume us? We, we owe our families more than that. Yeah, absolutely. So is that where your leadership philosophy comes from then, seeing your family in action or from your, do you take it from your ancestors that, you know, First Nations people have survived here for millennia? Do you take strength from that? Where does that strength and the leadership philosophy come from? Oh, yeah, there's, there's a lot of strength in, in knowing where you come from and, and connection to family and to culture. Uh, no one can ever take that away from you. And, and that's a real strong point for me. So if I ever do feel um, disconnected, that's often when I'm at my most vulnerable. So I, I know where I get my strength from and and deliberately try and connect back in and spend as much time with family as I can. Um, But in terms of leadership philosophy, I I think it's also been shaped by by my career to date. So, you know, I got thrown into a leadership position here at at Mindaroo and I had to learn very, very quickly how to manage a team, how to lead a team, how to work in the philanthropic space all at the same time. And so I've realised that, um, and it's been nice to work in a place that has the same approach is like we're in a hurry like we we don't have time to be always worrying about what other people think or you know why things might work or might not work more importantly you know I'm in a hurry and I think First Nations people are in a hurry you just need to look at the fact that the employment gap is 200 years away from closing for a start to realize we don't actually have that long and, and we shouldn't have to wait that long combined with the fact that our life expectancy and my life expectancy is, you know, 10 years shorter than other women. So I think when, when we look at the fact that I've had a very rapid rise in, in my career, I'm, I'm now 26, um, I've only been in the workforce for 10 years and I'm a CEO, like um, it can, sometimes you question yourself and like, do I really deserve to be here? But at the same time, there's so much to do that I'm really glad that I got started early. Yeah, and I have no doubt, Shelley, this is the second time you and I have talked and I have no doubt that you'll get things done while you're there too. 
Shelley, let's go back and give, I want to give our listeners some advice on how they can proceed with the work around employment parity, if that's something that they're keen to get involved with. What should employers be looking to do? And what are some practical tips you can give them for how to get going and how to measure their Indigenous employee uh, numbers and then how to go from there? So the first thing that I would recommend any employer to do is to understand who works for them. Like you need to know, first of all, whether you have Indigenous Australians who work for you, because if you do, there may be dedicated supports and tailored supports that you can offer those employees. And if you don't, then you need to think about why. So whatever the answer to that question is, whether you do or don't have Indigenous staff, you need to know first, because that will tell you what the next step is. Uh, and one warning that I would give to employers employers is, is often they look at the number of 3.3% and that's all they can focus on and we just need the numbers, we just need to get people in the door. That's quite a natural reaction because the goal is 3.3% and if you don't have it, therefore you, you should be aiming for that. Um, but I would love to stress that Indigenous employment is not is not a result and it's not a number. Indigenous employment is an approach, it is a whole system of things that work together to make sure that your workplace is inclusive and to make sure that the lived experiences of your Indigenous staff members are a positive one. I used to call that the tick the box exercise where organisations came to me and said we need Indigenous interns or we need Indigenous students and when I'd ask them why their answer would be oh no we're trying to get to 3.3% or we're trying to get to 3% and we just need more numbers and I think Michael McDaniel from UTS said it really well when he said Indigenous engagement is not a bolt-on it's about embedding it deeply in every division of your organisation. So it is a way you do business. It is a way you think about things. It is a way you approach things. The numbers come from the approach, not they don't lead the approach. Oh, exactly right. And the, the numbers are the lag indicator. <laughs> so if you've done things well and you've created a really safe and inclusive workplace, the numbers will come. And if you put the numbers first, often a lot of other things fall by the wayside. And so often it's more about you know cultural safety within an organisation. So whether uh, Indigenous Australians, but you know, also other cultures feel safe to be in your organisation, their lived experience, uh, whether they have a positive experience with their colleagues, uh, and you know, it leads into other things like cultural load and, and others. Um, but it's absolutely not a numbers, not, it's not a numbers game. <laughs> that's, that's often how we see Indigenous people get churned up by different employers. And often you'll see that Indigenous people might be sort of shopped around, like they might shop around between different employers. So each organisation can say, yeah, we hired an Indigenous person, but we only kept them for three months. And then one Indigenous person is contributing to four different companies' metrics for that year. So it really needs to be a bit more sustainable and, and systemic in the approach that employers take and acknowledge that the numbers are just one part of it. And if I can just share very quickly, one of the biggest projects that we're doing right now at Generation One is the Indigenous Employment Index. And the Indigenous Employment Index will be Australia's first, and we also think the world's first, attempt to understand the baseline of Indigenous employment at a range of large employers across the country. So we're in data collection right now. We hope to release it in the first quarter of next year. But what, what What's important about the approach that we're taking is we're not just asking employers, how many Indigenous staff do you have? We have a 
question survey that we've sent out to a range of employers and the actual results are about 10 questions out of the 76. So everything else is focused on the levers that organisations can pull to drive positive or negative Indigenous employment results. We want to know about the the commitment of the organisation, whether it's internal commitment or external commitment, who has accountability for those, for the targets and for the approach, Uh, what policies and, and procedures do you have in place? Does your, te- does your team undertake cultural awareness training? What are your connections to community that aren't just to get more recruits and get a bigger pipeline of Indigenous employees? Like what is your authentic connection to community and community organisations? So when you look at all of those different questions as well, you realise that Indigenous employment numbers are just such a small part of the overall picture. Yeah, great. And Shelley, if people want to connect directly with the work you're doing at Generation One, how can they do that? So Generation One, you can connect with us on our website. Uh, Anyone can reach out to me on on LinkedIn or social media. Uh, We really are trying to get the word out there around Indigenous employment, how important it is, how we need people to be working together. This this cannot be a competitive space where employers are looking for 3.3%. It really needs to be about how do we grow the pool so that everyone can achieve 3.3% and and quality measures as well on Indigenous employment. We, We need industry to work together. This is not about taking from a very small pool of Indigenous workers. It's about growing it so that we do have 300,000 more in work in the next 19 years. It's a theme that has come up again and again on this podcast and in Women's Agenda. How do we create population parity for our First Nations people? As Shelley reminded us, First Nations people face additional barriers to the workforce especially to enter corporate Australia. The fact that Generation One is dedicated to correcting this imbalance in one generation and breaking down some of those barriers is vital. The research shows that if we can support Indigenous students and young people into further study and work programs of any kind, including structured internships or job-ready programs, their life outcomes begin to change. Mental health improves, suicide rates go down, health and well-being improve, and even life expectancy can change. This is why Shelley's work is so important. Thanks so much for joining us for this episode of the Leadership Lessons produced by Women's Agenda. This episode was produced by Alison Ho and made possible through the support of Salesforce. You can contact us via Women's Agenda or me, Shirley Chowdhury, anywhere on social media. Women's Agenda comes out every weekday and you can read it and subscribe at womensagenda.com.au. For those of you who wish to contact Shelley directly, you can reach out on LinkedIn or reach out to Women's Agenda or myself and we'll put you in touch. See you next week with another great guest. Women's Agenda is proud to partner with Salesforce on this podcast series. As the world's leading CRM, Salesforce continues to be a different kind of Fortune 500 company, one that cares and gives back to the community, yet innovates like a startup. Equality is a core value at Salesforce and as a business, believes that its higher purpose is to drive equality for all. For more, visit salesforce.com.